The following is my interview with Dr. Cyan Proctor. In addition to being an astronaut, she's a geologist, an artist, an entrepreneur, let's just say all around multidimensional being. I'm sure you'll find her and her story as amazing and inspiring as I do. So let's start with, when did you first have the inkling to become an astronaut? Uh, you know, that's, I, I think I've been chasing space my entire life. Um, Cause I don't have a moment where I was like, oh, you know, mom, dad, I want to be an astronaut. I just know that from my early, earliest memories, I was obsessed with aviation um, and not in a particular type of aviation, like military aircraft. Uh, and, and so I was always looking up, trying to find airplanes. Uh, but I also knew that there was a connection between becoming a military aviator and becoming an astronaut. You know, um, I was born on Guam because my dad was working at the NASA tracking station during the Apollo missions. And so the whole idea of the right stuff was definitely something that I grew up with. And so I always saw being an astronaut through aviation. I guess that's it. It was just in your DNA. I mean, you were born nine months after the moon landing, right? Uh, yeah, I consider myself a moon <laughs> celebration baby for sure, you know? Let's talk a bit about your dad because he's a really interesting character. Tell us a bit about him and how he got into that position. Yeah, my dad was a hidden figure. He was self-taught uh, in math and science. And, uh, you know, out, out of high school, he took a test and scored really well on it. It was a math test. And um, and that just kind of opened up opportunities for him to get his radio technician's license where so that he could um, fix uh, radio, anything having to do with radios. And then then he went on to get certificates to be trained in ICBM missiles and missile tracking. And, and then that led to NASA and tracking um, you know, real rockets to the moon. <laughs> Truly amazing. So when was the moment you first thought you could actually be an astronaut? That the opportunity was presenting itself for you to actually go to space? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting because as a kid, I thought, you know, I would go to the Air Force Academy and, and fly F-16s. Like, how hard could that be, right? <laughs> um, but that reality slipped away pretty quickly as a teenager when I got glasses and I knew, you know, I, I wasn't going to be able to fly, let alone there weren't any, you know, female fighter pilots flying F-16s back then. But I didn't know that. And, you know, sometimes not knowing, like <laughs> we talk about access to information and um, my parents never said anything. So I just assumed that it was something that I could do. And they never told me it was something that I couldn't do, even though society had barriers up. Um, but then I just went off and lived my life for the next, you know, 30 years, basically. It wasn't until my end of my 30s that somebody said, NASA's looking for astronauts, you should apply. And that was the first time where I really thought, Oh, I could be an astronaut because I didn't I didn't even know how NASA selected astronauts because I had given up on that dream when I was a teenager. And so um, so it was really interesting to come back to it uh, in this in this way of becoming qualified, like where you think, yeah, OK, I have the qualifications because when I, when the the dream of being a fighter pilot slipped away. I thought being an astronaut would, had slipped away too, because to me, there were two types of astronauts. There were the fighter pilots who flew the shuttle 
And, you know, and, and, and I could see myself doing that. Um, and then there were the people who went to MIT and Harvard and, you know, what I call the rocket scientists, the people who are straight A's and super smart. And I was never that, you know, and as a kid going to school, I was, I was a C B student, yeah, definitely wasn't an A student. And so I just thought, oh, I'm not smart enough. They would never pick me um, to be that second category of astronauts. And that's why when they sent me, you know, friends said NASA's looking for astronauts and you should apply. And I opened up the application and I saw what the qualifications were. And I realized that out of, you know, I had my PhD. I had my pilot's license. I was scuba certified. I had, I had traveled and taught around the world. And the fifth thing that they were looking for was Russian. So I, that was the one thing I definitely didn't have was any Russian. But I had four out of the five um, categories. And then it was really about me convincing myself to apply um, because having imposter syndrome voice telling you you're not qualified or, you know, they'll never select you. You're just a community college professor. Um, the language in my head, uh, but I'm so glad that I did. I did apply. How did you flip that? First, explain what imposter syndrome is, and then how did you flip that to be able to just go for it? Yeah, you know, imposter syndrome is this um, this idea that you are qualified or have the experience or skills to do something, to do a job or to participate in something, but the voice inside your head fuels you with doubt. It's the conversation you have with yourself that, you know, when you see something that you really want, but then you hear that voice saying, you'll never get that. You're not qualified. You're not good enough. So it's that negative, uh, that negative doubting voice. And what I've, I came to realize is that you, you have to engage in a conversation with that voice. You know, it's going to come up. Um, it creeps in. And if you let that voice dominate, then you, you, it's very difficult to move forward. And so I, you know, when I was thinking about the fact that they would never um, select me, I thought about what my dad would say. And my dad would say, don't talk yourself out of opportunity. Let somebody else tell you whether you're qualified or not. And I think that that was the philosophy that he used. And that's one of the reasons why he was able to do the things that he did um, is being able to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go for this. And then you can tell me why you don't want me, you know, but, but not telling yourself ahead of, ahead of time that you're not qualified. And so I applied, but it was interesting because I got down to the yes, no phone call. And when I got that, no, that no from NASA, um, that imposter syndrome voice came rearing right back in and, you know, saying, see, they found out you're not qualified, you know, and, and I, it really, it really kind of messed me up for about six months. I turned my life upside down, trying to think about, okay, how, how do I become more qualified? How, how can I, can I show them that I'm not an imposter? And, and I started changing my life in ways that didn't suit me. They, you know, that really put a lot of pressure on me in ways that weren't healthy and, and then I stopped again and um, told myself, why am I doing this? You know, why am I turning my life upside down when I was almost a NASA astronaut? And that was worth celebrating. That's incredibly powerful in its simplicity. 
focus on the positive. I mean, that's something we can all do if we're able to catch our thoughts. That's fantastic that you were able to catch yourself and turn it around like that. Yeah, I was able to flip that moment from a negative because I, when I got the no, I saw it as a negative on me that I was an imposter. I wasn't qualified. I needed to be better. I needed to make myself better instead of seeing it as a positive on me and being like, wow, I have been living an amazing life that made it so that I was almost a NASA astronaut. Like, how cool is that? Right. Um, and when I started celebrating this achievement of getting down to, you know, the 1% of selectees, um, that's when I was able to move forward in a much more healthier way. This is like the most archetypical story of learning from a failure and just taking the lesson mm -hmm. and moving on because in doing so, you actually became an astronaut in the craziest way possible. Explain what happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so once I, you know, flipped the narrative from a negative to a positive in my head, I was able to move forward. And I told myself I was in going into my forties now. And I was like, okay, I can find other ways to advance human space flight, even if I never go to space. Um, you know, once that childhood dreams comes back, you're like, yes, I, I want to be a part of this. And so I became an analog astronaut living in moon and Mars simulations. And so I did my first Mars simulation um, basically three years after, just about three years after I got the no from NASA. And I, and it's funny because it was funded by NASA. It was funded by NASA to investigate food strategies for long duration space flight. So I lived in a Mars simulation on the big island of Hawaii for four months with five other individuals. And we literally had to, you know, suspend reality and act like we were living in a Mars simulation. And, and so that, you know, I loved it. Um, I learned a lot about myself. That was the first time I started dabbling into some more of the creativity side. That's when I, I tried to do some poetry. Um, I tried to do some drawing at that time. And, and so there was something about that experience that being isolated for four months in this interesting scenario. And, and then, um, I continued and did a couple more of those, uh, and, and then, then the pandemic hit, <laughs> I literally came out of a two week Mars simulation in Hawaii only to go into isolated lockdown, um, because of the pandemic. <laughs> wow. But then you had the craziest Willy Wonka experience ever. Getting the golden ticket. <laughs> you got the golden ticket. And just like Charlie and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you were so the perfect person that deserved it so much. I mean, even leading up to all of that is straight out of the storyline mm -hmm. because it happened so dramatically. It did. COVID. COVID changed everything because, um, again, I found myself... Um, in this isolated, confined environment, locked in, in my house, basically, with my husband at the time. And we were basically on the way out. We, you know, I got divor divorced during COVID in 2020. Um, but, but one of, the, again, the coping mechanism, um, being inside, not being able to travel, which is my favorite hobby, 
and I needed to unleash creativity. So I started becoming an, an artist. I started becoming a space artist, an Afrofuturist artist. And I was creating these postcards and I started a Patreon where I was mailing out postcards to people around the world. And, um, and they were supporting me, you know, telling me, wow, your art's really good. You, you know, continue doing this. And, and so as a result, um, I got a lot of confidence in art and poetry because what I would do is I would create these art, um, these postcards, collage art style, and then I would, um, you know, make a copy of them, a digital copy. And then I would, on the back, I would put a poem describing what it was that that art piece that I made meant to me. And I... And so I was sending those out. And then in beginning of 2021, I'm divorced. Um, I'm picking my life back up when Inspiration 4 was announced. And you could win your seat to, to space. Um, and there were two ways that you could be selected. You could be selected by donating money to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and get selected for the generosity seat. Or you could show your entrepreneurial spirit and open up a shop selling something and creating a Twitter video expressing why they should take you to space. And that's, I, I did both. Um, and I ended up winning the prosperity seat as an artist and a poet because I wrote an original poem called My Space to Inspire. That is so wild. What was that moment you found out? What was that moment like for you? It was the most amazing moment. I celebrated every year, March 7th. <laughs> so the competition was only open for the month of February. And again, this was, this was a Twitter competition. So I had to create a video. And I told myself that if I, because I almost talked myself out of not competing because there are a lot of influencers that had millions of followers in there, you know, and I only had a couple of thousand at the time. And I thought, Oh, I'll never be able to win this. And then, but then I told myself, you know, wait, you know, if I, cause I wrote this poem and I loved it. And I said, if I can just create this video and share it on Twitter, it's a win. I told myself just doing that was a win. And then, um, and then the competition ended and seven days later I got on a zoom call and Jarrett was on the call to my surprise because I didn't know he was going to be on there. And he said, you know, we selected a winner and it's you. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> what a life changing moment. And this was Jared Isaacman, who had the idea to take civilians to space and funded the whole thing as well. He knew that this was a historic moment. It was the first all civilian mission to orbit. And he was very thoughtful in how he put it together because he could have just flew with his friends. And instead he flew with three strangers. Right. Um, and and he gave away the seats and and then he did it for a cause. He wanted to raise two hundred million dollars for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to, so that we could try to end childhood cancer. And and so he came up with um, him and his team came up with four pillars, the leadership pillar, which he took as the commander of Inspiration Four. Then they hand selected Haley Arsenault for the hope seat um, because she's a childhood cancer survivor with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And she went on to become a physician assistant at St. Jude. And so representing the pillar of hope. And then Chris Zembrowski won the generosity seat by donating to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And then I was selected for the prosperity seat um, with my art and poetry. 
So how much time was there between sitting in that seat, learning that you were selected, and sitting in the seat of a spacecraft about to blast off? Five and a half months. That's incredible. <laughs> basically, you know, six months, basically. I learned um, March 7th that I had won my seat, and then I went... Two days later, we were off to Hawthorne SpaceX's headquarters for medical and, you know, initial checkout and stuff. But we didn't tell the world um, that I, me and Chris were selected. People knew that Haley and, and Jarrett were going, but we got announced March 30th. And, and then from March 30th, that's when, you know, the world knew and we officially kind of went into training. The next day we flew to start centrifuge training. And so, and then we trained for the next five and a half months and we, we lifted off on September 15th, 2021. That's an incredibly short time, especially considering you were also chosen to be the pilot of this thing. Yeah, I was, I, so Jared said, congratulations, you won the prosperity seat. And then the next thing he says is, and I think you should be my mission pilot. And I'm like, <laughs> okay you know imposter voice is like what um does he know that i've only flown a cessna 172 and that was like <laughs> a decade ago i wasn't even current anymore as a pilot but um he was confident in that i would be able to, to learn the job um one of the things that spacex made very clear was that you may have won your seat to space but you still have to qualify for your role and so I had to qualify as the mission pilot in basically five and a half months. <laughs> and this is all new technology. Oh, yeah. You're probably one of the first people to ever use it. Yeah, I am. And what's interesting is that, um, again, it's autonomous. The Dragon capsule is designed to fly itself to space and back home. So the modern day pilot and the commander, because the commander is also a pilot, um, our job is to understand the systems of the Dragon capsule and what we can and cannot control. And so a lot of it is about systems engineering, knowing how everything's integrated and works um, for the Dragon capsule and the Falcon 9 rocket. And so being a geologist, <laughs> I was like, I do not speak engineering, had to learn a lot of fun words um, and, and all of that. And, but I loved it. It was great because I tell my students that, you know, we need, you need to be a lifelong learner. You need to believe in the fact that you can learn anything at any age with determination, willpower, time, all of those things. And, and here I was in my fifties taking on that, that same challenge and, and showing that, yes, you know, um, you can, you can do these things at any age. Absolutely. So what do you do if the screen freezes? Do you like hit it? Do you hold down a button and try and reboot? Reboot a dragon. Yep. It's, it's, it's interesting because you have your touch screen, of course, and, and there are things that can go wrong with the flight computer, but there's a triple redundancy system. So, you know, you, you've got three versions of the flight computer, basically, but there is a procedure to reboot a dead dragon. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's an idea of, of how do you repower something up and, and get it working working again. Uh, but SpaceX has done an amazing job of creating a very, an incredible um, machine, uh, the Dragon capsule and the Falcon 9 rocket, and um, just incredible. Next question. What's it like to sit on top of a rocket 
and be thrust into space in a matter of minutes. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it, it's amazing, but it's also, you know, you've got a job to do. So it was funny because people asked me, what was it like, you know, being when the, the um, engines lit up and you started going into space? Like, I was like, wow, oh my God, we're actually doing this internally. But I was also laser focused on my job. You know, Jared and I are watching the, the what the flight computer is doing, you know, my job is to provide situational awareness um, because on ascent, as you're going up on the Falcon 9, you could be kicked off. If there's a problem with the rocket itself, the system is designed to detect that and it will eject you off of the, the booster. And um, But you could also, if you detect an anomaly or something that's not right, um, Jared and I also have the ability to um, to enacted that procedure. And so you really, you're really concentrating because you know, this is, you, you've got a job to do if something happens. Um, but I do remember, you know, getting thrust back and being like, you know, just having this permagrin, um, by the fact <laughs> that, you know, here we were going to space, you know, and, uh, and watching, the, the the monitors in front of me and hearing Jared doing the callouts uh, as we're proceeding through um, all of the steps in the flight computer and just being really aware of everything that we practiced in the simulations and um, and playing that role. But I didn't have the luxury to kind of like sit back and be like, whoa, this is great. You know, like um, our mission uh, specialist, Chris and Haley, they don't have monitors in front of them. So they, they kind of could sit there and feel the experience more, um, I guess, more present in a different way. Jared and I were very much very present in the same way, but with a focus. And so when I think about that, I think about the fact that I was like watching the flight computer. <laughs> what was this eject button like? I mean, it needs to be readily available, but pretty well protected. Yeah, you can't do it by mistake, you know, and it's only and it's one of those things where, you know, it's active for a, uh, a, a certain part of flight. But what's interesting, though, is, um, again, knowing what you can and cannot do and but the flight computers and how sophisticated everything is. Again, it's designed to detect things faster, more efficiently than a human can. And that's one of the reasons why when we're looking at, you know, um, these vehicles and how much more safe they are becoming, it's because of human ingenuity to be able to design things that are very robust. When was the moment you were able to just relax and take it all in? Well, you know, there were moments, especially when you get up there, you know, um, it, it, we had a very rigorous kind of schedule and procedure, but you had moments of, of being able to get up into the cupola and the cupola is our giant window that was looking down on earth and just be up there for a few minutes and really kind of take in the beauty of our planet. Um, and, but then you would go back to doing something like medical or, you know, um, working on some of the projects that you brought to space. And, and so I think that there's always this kind of like your first time, um, particularly cause it was only three days. There's still this sense of like, how do I, um, make sure I don't mess anything up, you know, always kind of being alert to what the mission is and all of the objectives. And so, uh, but, but there are definitely moments of being like, wow, I can't believe I'm up here. 
and and it ends so quickly. You know, you get up there, you're doing your work, you know, that moment finally arrives. Um, your Willy Wonka chocolate factory tour moment, right? I call it where you go up and you're like, whoa, this is amazing. And just like Willy Wonka, you're, you know, you're, or Charlie in the Charlie in the, in the chocolate factory, you're, you're enjoying it, but you're also like, whoa, you're also kind of like stunned by the, the fact that you're actually there. And then you have to come home. You get to the third day and you're like humming and everything's great and, and you're loving every moment of it. And then they say, yeah, you got to come home. And so a lot of the, the time is going through some of the procedural stuff of how do you live and work in space. What impacted you the most being up there? Definitely the biggest thing was looking at the earth and getting bathed in earth light. Um, you know, I've been using this example because not a lot of people have, have ever heard of the idea of earth light. And it's basically the same thing as moonlight, but more spectacular because it's the earth. And so you think about when you walk outside and it's a full moon rising and how that moonlight impacts you. You know, most people get a smile on their face when they think about moonlight, but you think about the human history with moonlight. We have a lot of myth and lore and, and love songs. And even every time there's a full moon, full moon, you know, emergency rooms fill up because people just, it brings out something in us. And then you get to orbit and you get up into the, um, the cupola and you're looking down on the, on our planet and you look at yourself and you just realize that you're being bathed in earth light. And, and it's just so beautiful, so stunningly beautiful. Have you found a creative way to express that, that you feel conveys some of the essence? Yeah, I've written a, uh, you know, I've written a poem, a poem called Earth Light. Um, but then I've also started trying to paint, you know, that experience of being up there and being, you know, with an astronaut kind of glowing in um, earth light. <laughs> is that poem short? Is it something you could share? Off it's the top actually, of your head? it's kind of long, okay. but it's, uh, but I'll give you just um, uh, one little part from it that kind of gives you the essence of the poem. Um, and let me just find it really here. Really sure. Quick. Yeah, I love this theme of earth light. Okay, so this is how it starts. I thought the moonlight was my guiding light until that day when my soul shimmered, eyes wide and dilated with realization, for there I was being bathed in earth light. Tasered by the pulsating earth glow, my weeping ego quivers, spellbound in awe at the cosmic chaos perched against the death. A clear beacon of hope and longing etched by complex molecules and spiraling DNA. Golden strands of energy cascading outward, encapsulating hopes and dreams, existence and affirmation. And it keeps going on. Love it. It's interesting that you say up against the death. It reminds me of William Shatner's brief visit to space. And he talked about how he was so overwhelmed when leaving the atmosphere yeah. by the sense of leaving the life of earth mm -hmm. and entering what he basically described as a realm of death. Yeah, he did. So, you know, two poets going to space. Yeah. Although <laughs> I, uh, you know, I want to say that I think I went before William Shatner. So <laughs> yes, you did. And you were there for three days yeah. instead of five minutes. Yeah. 
But anyway. But he was very touched, too, by the experience. Mm -hmm. And there is that idea of, you know, the fact that here we were in this man, uh, human-made um, spacecraft, and we had this this cupola, this, this plexiglass, you know, um, composite that was made on Earth. And that it was just that between us and, you know, death. And... Uh, I just think, wow. And people ask, were, you know, if I was ever afraid being up there. And I was like, no, I never actually thought about um, dying up there. But I was kind of already okay if that was the case. Because, you know, there are many ways to, to die. <laughs> and to me, dying as a result of doing the one thing I always wanted to do um, you know, from when I was a child, I, I was okay with that, that risk. Um, but the risk was so small. Um, you know, I think about just the hazard of driving my car every day <laughs> and the potential of being in a terrible accident. In fact, I was in a terrible rollover accident in Iceland where my friend got ejected out of the, out of the SUV. We all survived, but in an instant, it could have been over. Yeah. And, um, and then recognizing, you know, the, the fragility of life, um, and, and wanting to live life to the fullest. Indeed. So you're also a geologist and you've studied the earth up close through a microscope, all that. What was your geologist perspective looking at the earth as a whole from space? <laughs> my geology perspective was well my my geology perspective was like dang we do live on a water world and clouds are awesome you know you'd get up in the cupola and you'd be like wow there's nothing but clouds and then he'd, there were times when we could see land but it was pretty it was so much more apparent just how how much water there is in the oceans and how much of that water is circulating through our atmospheric systems, um, you know, and and play a role um, in how the Earth regulates energy. Um, but seeing the blues of the oceans and um, and then the whites and grays of the clouds and lightning in the clouds and the um, the aurora, aurora borealis one night. Um, but then you would see at night like human-made lights, you know, um, of the cities and be like, wow, it, it, it's transformative. I can imagine you get a really clear sense of the earth as alive. You do. As yep. a whole. Yep. I call her Afro Gaia, a portrait in motion, you know, um, and, and it is, it is a, a system that's regulating, um, and it's teeming with, um, you know, chemistry and physics and, and life and, and it's all coming together to have this, this history, um, this narrative that's, it, that's really fascinating. It's the ultimate fascination. <laughs> it is. There's no place like earth, you know, as a geoscientist, you know, I'll go to the moon and Mars, but you know, earth is definitely number one. And then that's one of the things about the fact that when we solve for space, we actually are solving for earth. 
and thinking about how the, you know, learning to live on the moon and Mars and the efficiencies that have to come with that in food, water, shelter, energy, waste management, all of that has to be really efficient to be living out in space or on the moon or on Mars. And then that technology we develop um, to be able to create those efficiencies are here on Earth. And we see that get transferred all the time from space technology to Earth, um, Earth-bound uses. You're looking down on Earth. You see all the water, the clouds, the land, everything. And somehow, life emerged from all of this. And here you are, a part of life, a part of the Earth, looking down on itself in conscious amazement. Yeah. Pretty much. How has it been processing that? You know, I'm, I think I'm still processing it. But, you know, you come back. I've, I, you know, my undergrad is environmental science and I, I've got a master's in geology. So I've always been, you know, uh, a champion of the earth. But I think you, you come back with a sense of, you know, a message of sus being more sustainable, uh, looking at um, the technologies, uh, playing a role in things like ocean conservation and using your voice as uh, and, and the experience of seeing that Earth from the, that orbital perspective, because, you know, approximately 600 people have had the ability to do that in all of human history. So we're a really small, um, small group of, of people, and but we've had an experience and gained a perspective that needs to be shared out so that others can understand that, you know, um, Earth is a living system and that the ways that we interact with our planet have a ripple effect across the entire planet, that it's not just uh, limited to our local local area or, you know, um, community. And is Afro-Gaia part of that perspective? Gaia being the living planet, yeah. Afro being the roots of humanity? Yeah, yep, exactly. That we, yeah, that um, the Afro-futurist kind of angle, like, you know, coming out of Africa, um, humanity, that, that cradle, and then being able to um, survive and then, you know, trying to thrive on this planet, um, but realizing that the planet itself is an, a, a living ecosystem where we have to find harmony um, and sustainability within that system. Um, the earth will, will be fine without us. <laughs> and so it's up to us to figure out how to be in equilibrium with it, with Mother Gaia or, or Afro Gaia, as I say. Okay, so let's bring this back down to earth now. First, what's it like coming back to Earth from space? Okay, so that's a lot more interesting. And to my, to me, I, I thought coming back to Earth was more fun because I, and I think part of it is because I got to sit for a moment and and be present in just what the spacecraft was doing versus having to um, uh, monitor, you know, every moment. Because when you hit the atmosphere, you your heat shield is either going to hold up or it's not you can't, there's nothing you can do about it. So you really are along for the ride and you're, you're, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I've got a moment. And, and I remember just sitting there and the dragon capsule does these big S turns, um, through the atmosphere as a way, you know, to slow it down. So you hear the of the Dracos as they're firing and, and you're, you're doing these turns. Um, and in the flight computer, you can see how you're, 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 um, honing in on your landing spot. Um, but to just sit there and, 
in front you have the dragon eyes which are the eyes that you can see um here i've got my little model here um so these are uh the dragon eyes in front that you can see through um and so you know chris was here and if you kind of tilted your head a little bit you could see the window just a little there and and see the plasma coming up through um as your heat shield is being a, a, a basically ablated off <laughs> and uh and but there's this this moment of like realizing that at any moment if something went wrong there's nothing you can do about it but you're just so it's there's a peacefulness to it too even though all of this activity is happening where you're just i don't know i just felt a sense of calm and and happiness and um and joy uh and 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 acceptance for whatever might happen during that moment and then you know that moment passes and you're feeling the g's and you're like oh, well there's because the g forces they build up quick when you come back um whereas on ascent it's a slow gradual climb up to you know about four and a half g's but when you come back to earth it's like quick g load and you haven't had it and you're like wow gravity's heavy and so you're kind of pressure breathing you're like and you're and you're enjoying it and you're kind of like sitting there in the moment and then you get through to the point where communications are reestablished you know you're watching your altitude Jared and I are and then you're waiting for that communications window to open back up and then you're super excited when it does cuz you're like okay we got SpaceX back on board and then and then you're and then it's back to work because Jared and I were watching the flight computer again making sure that the drogues and the mains come out so that you don't die when you hit the ocean <laughs> you know when you do your splashdown wow what was it like coming out of the capsule and reconnecting with Earth? Yeah, you know, well, I think the moment really happened at splashdown. You know, once the once the mains come out, you're just like there's this sense of relief because your airspeed's dropping. You know that you're going to splash down. Everything's going to be okay. Um, and and then you know you get down to the last few um, feet before you hit. You know, and you're bracing for impact. And I just remember we hit, and you know, we we kind of the spacecraft kind of bobs. And then we all went, woo, you know, we were all so excited um, because we had done it. Mission complete. And I just remember it was like this Phoenix rising moment where I could feel the, the pressure rising off of me. Like it was my becoming moment where I, you know, I, I did it. I successfully became the first African-American female to pilot a spacecraft. Wow. And then, you know, so I, I told myself, I'm dancing when I come off of this, uh, uh, out of the capsule. And you don't know, because you don't know how you're going to feel under gravity. You haven't stood up yet. You know, you're still in your seat. It takes about an hour to get back onto the ship. They hoist you up. And then they come in, you know, they check on you. And then they pull you out one by one. And Haley went first and then I told myself I'm going to do everything I can to come dancing off of that capsule and I did <laughs> which yes. is uh, so great that is awesome <laughs> such a beautiful metaphor to think of you being rocked in the ocean by mother earth upon your arrival yeah home. yeah it is where you know cradling you um in um in where it all began in the oceans you know that whole idea of our our cosmic when we think about the the 
cradle of humanity coming out of Africa, but the cradle of life as is our oceans, right? You know, coming out of that um, that interesting mixture of of chemicals and um, opportunity and and creating life and then diversifying from there. It's it's pretty amazing. I feel like you've kind of been to the future with this experience. And I know you've also been deep into the past. I know you've collected core samples from all over the world mm -hmm. and you've looked millions of years into the Earth's history. What perspective have you gained from that? Um, you know, one of the big things is just thinking about uh, you know, as a geologist, the geologic record of our our history um, on Earth um, in the form of, you know, not just the chemistry of the rocks and things like that, but actually the biological life and being able to be on the joyous resolution and going into the South Pacific, um, the Antarctic Circumpolar Current and pulling up these core samples going back, you know, millions of years and looking at the life that existed in the form of microscopic, you know, um, single cell organisms and things like that, you know, radiolariums and, you know, all the different um, um, microscopic life forms that, you know, and you think about how this is where our origins come from. And then how these complex things get fed on by bigger things that get fed, fed on by bigger things that get fed on by bigger things. And then you get to these, you know, you get to things like, you know, the blue whale, you know, and you're just like, wow, you know, uh, you're, it's such an interesting thing from the microscopic to the, you know, the vastness of the universe and um, thinking about what the James Webb telescope is telling us about our, the, our early existence and just how many more galaxies there are out there that we never could have imagined. Um, and then, you know, I feel so fortunate that, that humans are so creative and imaginative and our ingenuity um, and that creativity has enabled us to discover things and continuously discover and redefine. It's not like these are all like set in stone. They're, these are things that we, we, we build upon as our knowledge and our technology becomes better. We, we, we refine our ideas of how, you know, our place in the universe um, and with everything. And then with that becomes the responsibility, right? All of this knowledge and insight um, comes with uh, responsibility to be able to uh, become in equilibrium with um, not only our our planet but also the grander I think universe. The Holocene was a good run. <laughs> the last ten thousand years have been pretty awesome time of good weather. Yeah, like a stable time in which humanity has been able to flourish. How unique is that in the millions of years that you've looked back and? How does that relate to the moment that we're in now? Well, you know, um, what it does is it shows that um, humans, particularly um, homo sapiens, you know, um, our ability to kind of like evolve in a way where we can um, capture and use the resources around us much more efficiently than anything else. Um, and, and then what that, you know, brings this knowledge, but then you put it in context with the entire human, uh, not human history, but earth history. And you realize that we are a blip in the geologic time. And, and the, 
you know, the fragility of life, um, knowing that in the past we had species that ha are no longer with us. I, I feel like that that is a clear indication <laughs> that you can be wiped out and the earth will continue on in other ways. And, and so I think that's something that we we talk about particularly with climate change and um, and how to adapt, but I don't think we fully grasp that because we tend to be a reactive species versus a proactive species. We react when we realize there's something wrong, but the question really becomes, is there tipping points where you can't come back from that, where you get to a point where you waited too long to react, and as a result, the consequences are so devastating that it changes the, um, the outlook for humanity. Considering we're already pushing past so many tipping points, what gives you hope? Or more, what can humanity actually do to mitigate and prevent some of the damage and allow for the best outcomes? Well, you know, I think that there is hope. I'm a futurist, so, and I, but, you know, humanity is amazing at coming up with ways of solving problems. That's what we do. We solve problems. Um, but if we can just collectively come together to address um, sustainability, climate change, re regenerative systems, you know, all of these things, then uh, we, we can we can survive and not only survive, but thrive right on the earth and beyond. But we, we concentrate too too much on our differences, um, to unite. And I think space flight is a way to unite humanity. You know, as we go to, um, low earth orbit onto the moon, Mars and beyond, it, it requires this new space of leadership and thinking where instead of co competition, we could become complementary <laughs> instead of exclusive, we become inclusive. And I think that we just strive for what I call a just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive space, both on earth and beyond a Jedi space, star Wars, uh, metaphor, but definitely a star Trek message, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or I guess it's a Star, Trek, Star Wars message, but a Star Trek metaphor for the way things can be when we reunite and create something like a federation where we're all working together for the betterment of humanity. There's space for everyone, if you will. There is. And it's our, it's, we got to find our place in space. And how do, we, how do we capitalize on the resources that are out there so that we can, can continue to grow and thrive and move away from a scarcity model of competition here on Earth. What about inner space? Do you have any practice for exploring the inner space of consciousness? Yep, I've been, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm doing more and more of is thinking about um, the, you know, what is life, what, what represents, you know, um, being alive and our reality and those kinds of things. But I think that also I'm really interested in digital space too, because I think digital space opens up a, a realm of possibilities that are endless in a, in the same way that, um, that, you know, space itself does 
because the, the, you know, I look at what we're doing with AI and the idea of digital twins and quantum computing and, you know, and, and the signals and the, and the things that we're creating that maybe, you know, we, we look at it that humans are creating these things, but maybe we're tapping into things that already always existed, but now we have the tools to be able to communicate to these other possibilities. I wonder about that too. I feel like we're on the verge of something. Right. Some other dimension, yeah. some other way of communicating. Right. We didn't create radio waves. We discovered them, right? And, yeah. then we, and, we, and we were able to use them in interesting ways. So I feel like digital space is opening up discoveries that will enable us to hopefully communicate to um, or uh, open up possibilities that are so amazing. The possibilities are endless. There could be some other dimension out there. In I know. fact, there probably I is. There probably is. I mean, if the physics has shown that there are, right? So now yeah. how, how can we tap into them? And I think that it's a lot of that's going to be through digital space. That's interesting. Maybe we'll connect with life elsewhere in the universe in some unforeseen way. I mean, we always think of it in terms of the signals we know how to detect or even physically, but it may very well happen in some other way. Wouldn't that be AI in some extent, you know? Possibly, yeah. We, we like to think that we're creating, but when we get to the point where we have, you know, um, a, where we can't tell the difference between um, talking to a human and AI, um, and the AI is starting to really kind of um, make decisions and do things that um, are very lifelike, what does that mean? I mean, I'm excited to see what happens in this space. Well, we're definitely going to have to have another round on all this because there's just way too much to explore here. <laughs> what is life? What is consciousness? Can AI get to the point of having its own kind of experience of either of those? Or can it fake it to the point where we don't even know? Yeah. Or maybe it doesn't even know itself. Or could we possibly be tapping into a signal that enables AI? You know, then so when we talk about it becoming, is it alive? Well, are we creating something? It's kind of, again, like discovering radio waves. Maybe we're creating through code and systems something that allows us to communicate to something that is in a different realm. And we see that as AI. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by how much we don't know. Exactly. And human curiosity pushing the boundaries like with quantum computers and the recent experiment to simulate black holes, create a wormhole between them and pass a bit through it. Mm -hmm. So everything about that is completely mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And what I love about humans most is that even though we don't know how these things work, we'll still find a way to use it. Yeah. Like we have no idea how quantum entanglement is happening, but we're able to still use it and incorporate it into all kinds of technology. Well, it, it, that's what makes us special, and but it also makes us uh, again with that with these abilities comes responsibility, and and that's where I hope that we we can uh, always be mindful of the responsibilities that we have. Well, that's a more important point than ever before, considering the power of these technologies. So let's leave it there for now. Thank you so much, Cyan. Always such a pleasure, and I look forward to the next round. Yeah, absolutely.